Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hi, this is Bill Peacock, and welcome to episode 36 of the Liberty Cafe. Very glad you can be with us today. Also glad to have Texas Scorecard as our sponsor. They've been very generous in helping us get the message of liberty out to Texans. And so we're great to, grateful to have them to be on their team. And speaking of Texas Scorecard, um, with us today is Jeremy Kitchen. He is with Texas Scorecard. In fact, he's their capital correspondent. And uh, Jeremy has been, uh, well, he's been keeping an eye on the Texas uh, legislature for for some time in a lot of different ways, and particularly this session, he's been trying to let conservatives and people who are interested in liberty know about what the Texas legislature is doing or is not doing to promote liberty in Texas. So, Jeremy, really glad to have you on uh, the Liberty Cafe today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I, I thought today what we really would like to talk about is the Texas budget. Conservatives get fired up about a lot of different issues, and, and rightly so. It's kind of hard to to turn around today without seeing a lot of things in society and culture and government that are offensive to liberty, that, that are encroaching on liberty, whether you're a, a secular you know, libertarian or a Christian who, who believes that God has provided all the things that we need to help us see what he wants us to do and how we're supposed to do it and through Christian liberty. You know, whichever perspective you take on that, there's a lot of things going on in society and culture today that sort of get in the way of that. And I don't need to go through all those things today. But something that conservatives maybe don't get quite as fired up about, and understandably so in some ways, is the budget how much the legislature spends here in Texas, how much Congress spends. I mean, I, I don't know that anybody really knows how much Congress spends. Sure. But, but for, at least here in Texas, we have sort of an idea of what they spend. But they keep spending more and more, right? just like they do in Washington, D.C. And so... This is a really good time, I think, to kind of talk about that in the in the bigger picture. But I'd want to start off with what has been going on in the, in the legislature re recently, uh, both in the Senate and the House. So, Jeremy, could you start us off by just kind of telling us where the budget is in the process of the Texas legislator, legislature's 140-day uh, session? Sure. Uh, so as of today, I think we're like counting today. We're at 35 days left in the 140 day legislative session. Um, the only kind of constitutionally bound thing that legislators have to do within the 140 days is, of course, pass a budget, a balanced budget. Right. Uh, which is important, certainly separates them from, uh, let's say, Congress, where there isn't a, a balanced budget amendment. Um, if you will, but does have to be balanced. And of course, as you alluded to, right, the definition of balanced and kind of this like maybe shell game without sounding too conspiratorial on what that looks like, right, at the end of the legislative session um, is kind of the important takeaway. The budget process um, itself is generally a two-year process, right? So the legislature, of course, as I'm sure you and, and, and your um, 
listeners know, um, you know, they meet Texas, the Texas legislature meets once every two years for 140 days, but the process itself generally is a two-year process, right? And so when it hits the floor in the House and Senate, respectively, uh, much of the debate has already kind of happened behind the scenes. And to be honest, right, they're kind of squabbling over um, not crumbs, that's not the right way to put it, but kind of the nuances, right? The stuff around the edges, um, if you will. As of today, uh, the budget in two different forms um, has passed out of both the Senate and House. Um, so they alternate the chamber in which it starts every um, every cycle. It started, Senate Bill 1, um, started in the Senate Um this legislative cycle, it passed the Senate uh, unanimously a few weeks ago. It passed the House last week unanimously as well in a different form. And because it's a different form, it's going to have to go in what's kind of this inevitable uh, thing that happens every cycle for the budget uh, to what's called a conference committee. And um, the conference committee is appointed five members of the House, five members of the Senate. Normally, um, it is those conferees are the kind of the appropriations subcommittee chairman for certain articles, right, in the House. And then on the finance side, uh, the people charged with kind of escorting or shepherding those articles in the overall budget document there. And then they're supposed to kind of hash out the differences uh, between the bills. And then based on those differences, those get submitted to what's called a conference committee report. And both the House and Senate, um, you know, move to uh, adopt uh, the conference committee report and then ultimately pass the overall budget document out to where it goes to the governor's desk. Timeline-wise, this normally happens uh, this time every cycle, um, and I expect you'll see a conference committee report here um, as we close out the legislative session toward the last like really week or two um, of the legislative session as they kind of move on to, to other things. So that's kind of an overview of where it's at, I guess you can say. Okay. Well, I, I know that the Texas scorecard and empower Texans take a, a long look at a lot of the issues that are going through the, the legislature. And, you know, they, they kind of look at them from a conservative free market libertarian sort of perspective and, and pronounce their thoughts, do write a lot of articles about those kinds of things. Sometimes they score them uh, different votes on all those types of things. So at this point in time, where there's still a lot left to be done, where would you say we are on, on the Texas budget right now? Is this something, a budget that Texas conservatives can stand up and be proud of? Or do you think it, it's not really promoting the kind of values and the size and scope of government that we want? Sure. I think there's a few takeaways, right? Um, I think there are some groups that will tell you it's a conservative budget and that it meets criteria of population and inflation, uh, right? Which is certainly true. I think what's the important takeaway, though, is that it still grows when compared to previous legislative cycles. Um, in fact, I, I mean, a significant amount, billions upon billions of dollars, even in the past two biennium, which of course is um, the two fiscal years, right? Um, it's the, 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 the actual budget is growing. The question I think that should be on taxpayers' mind is uh, whether or not the value you're getting from government um, is also growing right in, in parallel. I think there's other takeaways, right? There is no, even though there was an amendment, which maybe we can talk about a little bit later, that was accepted initially here in the House version of the bill, you know, they they maintained uh, the, uh, the property tax relief Right. The amount that was in the property tax relief fund that was put in from last legislative session, even though people all around Texas and has have their property tax um, 
um, assessments and stuff going up, they didn't add to the relief necessarily, right? And I think that's that's something that not a lot of people are talking about. But I can tell you that's a, that's the num- almost the number one complaint I hear uh, from people I talk to, right? Is that there's no one really doing anything to effectively uh, push down on the kind of ever increasing, exponentially increasing property taxes. Um, so that's I think that's one takeaway. And there's a there's certainly some. Some other stuff there, um, you know, in relation to kind of just what it funds and how it funds it. Um, You know, I I can certainly speak to some House amendments that were good wins for conservatives, um, if you will, uh, that, you know, where like maybe they kind of zeroed out some slush funds. Right. um, And maybe put it towards things like property tax relief or put it towards some more kind of conservative priorities. But the reality is we won't know whether those things survive the overall conference committee, um, you know, the brass tax compared to a lot of other bills on the budget specifically, normally the conference committee is reluctant to change a lot of the bills from when they passed it out of committee, right? They, they kind of look at it as this, this huge project that they've worked for two years on where they've made certain recommendations and how dare any other member, right, try to uh, try to change those things. Um, and so normally, not always, but normally a lot of those budgets that get accepted, especially on the House side, because very seldom do uh, does it get altered in the Senate, um, get stripped out in conference, right? And like one of the right. things maybe your listeners listen to for the House deliberations, we can talk about this more too. Um, a lot of legislators on the House side, House members will make the motion as they're presenting their amendment to say, oh, I'd like to send this to Article 11, uh, right? And in general, I'm sure as you and I know, Article 11, for lack of a better term, is, is Narnia, right? It doesn't doesn't really exist. It's kind of this wish list where legislators get to say, look, I'm fighting for whatever pet project in an amendment, but they never, that Article 11 never gets accepted in the overall budget uh, just because yeah. generally the conferees, it, what they're instructing the conferees by making that motion, what they're saying is, uh, please you know, please put this in the budget if you have extra money, right, uh, to, to allocate. And of course, that never happens. They always find some other uh, thing to, to use the money for. And so it's, just, you know, it is a culmination of a bunch of shell games without sounding too tinfoil haddish. Um, a lot of these negotiations and stuff happen behind the scenes. Um, and generally speaking, right. I mean, unless they're cutting the budget, right, like conservatives, fiscal conservatives should always question why it is we're growing certain agencies right like why it is gradually over time we're increasing this well let, let me put you let me put you on the spot here sure um i'm going to test your your bona fides here oh no do you, th- <laughs> do you think government is too big oh absolutely all right so then you i mean and i think most texans wouldn't when you agree at least most conservatives sure but probably even most Texans would agree with that statement government's sure. too big so if government is too big then allowing it to grow even for population plus inflation is a losing game would you agree with that great point agreed yeah i mean it, there there's everybody says well we got to let it grow population plus inflation and i say well you know we, we can make the argument well the marginal cost for the growth of government don't really match up to population growth Certainly, maybe even not inflation, because they can provide the extra services at a lot less cost than that index. But sure. for the for those people, but our argument as conservatives is that they shouldn't be providing a lot of those services anyway, right? Or Absolutely. a lot of those regulations, or you know, you know, whether it's 
welfare should be coming from individuals and the church and sure. charity and those kind of things. Uh, the free market should be not overburdened with all these regulations and all these big bureaucracies, whatever you want to take it. Sure. And so the only way to do that is to actually cut the size of the budget. Right. Yet, but that's not what we see when we look at these budget debates, right? So when you, you get to, for, of course, in the Senate, when they pass theirs, they don't really have budget debates over there. That's right. They just sit around and say nice things about each other. Uh. In the House, you, you kind of see some budget debates, but it seems lately there's been less and less of that going on. And you noted in, in a podcast the other day that this round of budgeting budget debate on the House floor was shorter than it had in the past, in part because there was a lot of negotiations going on in the background. Could you kind of explain that to us here? Sure. Like Even though the debate itself, for anyone that tuned into it, God bless you, um, even though the debate itself lasted, I think it was 11 hours, right about there, right? It would seems like a long time to people, and generally for any bill, it, it, that is. Budget night, especially on the House side, is kind of known for being this long a long thing. Sometimes, depending on when they started, it goes past midnight, right? And the legislators get to tweet out that they're burning the midnight oil and working hard for you. But the reality is, especially on this one, it was very obvious that because there is the House normally adopts a rule um, that requires that amendments that members intend to offer um, are pre-filed, right? Which gives a whole bunch of people, obviously all the legislators, a heads up to say, okay, you know, the out of all these, and I think it was 246 uh, pre-filed amendments this cycle, um, these are the ones that they have the intent to offer. It gives leadership specifically, not, not necessarily maybe the speaker's office, but just leadership, right? It gives uh, Dr. Greg Bond and the appropriations chairman and his staff, right? And staff at LBB time to look at it and say, okay, does this work, right? Can we make this work? or come up with arguments as to why it doesn't work right ahead of time. It also gives them time to go to these, the authors of these amendments and say, Hey, you know, I looked at this and I'm going to speak against this, or I'm going to be opposed to this if you maintain it. Right. And, and what, what inevitably ends up happening is yes, they go into the, to budget night with 246 amendments, right. Which is significantly lower actually than, than past sessions, but with this amount, these amount of amendments and a lot of times what they'll do is say, okay, you know, we've got seven amendments related to Medicaid expansion. Right. Um, we will we'll cut deals. This is all obviously behind the scenes outside of the, the two cameras, right, that the general public can look at if they're tuning into the process. Um, but it happens outside the rails or back in the speaker's office or back in the, uh, the members lounge, right, where they talk about these things. And they say, I'll let you lay out this this bill later on in the calendar. That's maybe somewhat controversial if you pull this one. Right. And those conversations start happening. And it was very obvious this cycle, even more so compared to previous cycles, that um, leadership, however you define that, had had these conversations where they said, OK, I'll let you have the let's say the big one. Right. The Medicaid expansion amendment will let you talk about that. It was very obvious. They let Garnett Coleman. Right. For instance, who was the author of that amendment, talked for longer than the 10 minutes. Right. That they allotted. Uh, you know, via rule uh, to, to all the other members. And there wasn't a single person at the back mic, right, that was there to ask a question, which, of course, in any other legislative cycle, you'd easily have conservatives standing back there, right, uh, wanting to know why it is we're wanting to expand Obamacare, right, like things like that. 
none of that happened. It was extremely orchestrated. They didn't even have friendly conversations, right? Like sure, Garnett Coleman was surrounded by eight or nine fellow Democrat, you know, House members, but they didn't even have the orchestrated theater of, you know, supporters right at the mic asking friendly questions or anything. It was he talked about it, introduced it, and then they had a vote. Right. And and so it was very telling. I think it's the perfect example of that was orchestrated behind the scenes. Everyone on the floor, right, generally knew what was going to happen. They knew that, okay, they really wanted this to come to uh, be one of the very few record votes, as we talked about earlier, right, to actually take place that night. And so the assumption that the verdict was in, they knew how the vote was going to go, right? Uh, And and so so what, what we see here is there's a lot going on the budget debate over the last two years, but Texans know very little about it is the, is the bottom line. Sure. Absolutely. You're saying? And, 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 and we don't get a lot of votes on amendments. And because you talked about in the other podcast too, that some of them just got slapped on, you know, even co- some controversial ones sure. just kind of got slapped on there. So nobody, well, we don't know exactly where they got slapped on there, but one might speculate that they got slapped on there so nobody would have to vote on them and right. go on record. And then possibly, quite possibly, they're just going to kind of come off um, right. during the, you know, who knows? They, some of them might stay on. But True. but let me ask you about some of the amendments that, that, so some amendments that Republicans offer, you know, take money, you know, they take money away from some unpopular program, perhaps, mm-hmm. at least with Republicans, uh, what was it? The geosciences board was one of them and right, then right. other places. And then they put them onto another one, the program that is more popular, trying to put the Democrats in a hard place. But right. have have you ever seen an amendment on the House floor that just cuts the budget? Yes, but very seldomly. And this cycle, there, I don't believe there were any, at least any that got offered, right, that weren't negotiated away. Um, and so uh, most of the time, to your point, it is they, you know, because they have the put and take rule, right? Or the, uh, they um, they take from somewhere else and put it from somewhere else, trying to kind of to, right make it politically awkward, right, for people to vote against it. Um, there is a lot of that theater that takes place. Uh, but yes, I mean, very generally, they never actually cut, right? They never get rid of money from the initial estimate. It's just putting it somewhere else. So by the, I mean, by the time we get to the place where the Senate has their amendment, their budget debate, and the House mm-hmm. has their budget debate, we've already got a floor, and cool. they're not going to spend less than that. That's right? right. And and so it doesn't do any good for a conservative to come up there. Well, from a practical sense, it, sure. it may from a from a accountability. Uh, angle, but it, it doesn't do any good for a Republican to come up there and say, hey, we're going to strip this money out of this program because if they do that, the money just goes back into a pot and the next person can come along and just take that money and put it right back in the bill somewhere else, right? That's so right. That's there's, right. No, there's no mechanism throughout really the whole budget process for Republicans, conservatives to stand up and say, hey, why don't we spend less money? That's right. I think it's also important to note, too, I mean, just historically, again, not trying to sound too speculative, but, you know, very generally, it, the so many members ask when they ask for the committee assignments, right, in the House especially, they'll ask to be set 
right on house appropriations so they can they can be a part of that conversation and very seldom do the kind of the more conservative members get put on there and when they do i mean they're just vastly outnumbered right uh, by legislators who might not necessarily be interested in cutting and specifically only want to work on whatever their pet project is for their district or for their block of you, you know um, block of individuals uh, whether that be partisan or not right and and so the, the deck is certainly stacked against conservatives that do want to see uh, to your point let's say a cut in the budget or, or something like that for sure yeah well let's talk about the, the numbers just just a little bit here and and see what we're talking about. I thought Michael Sullivan had a good piece the other day about kind of breaking down the budget numbers to, you know, the, the family level, right? And, sure. and I think he's, he came up with a number that the, for the family of four Texas government, and this is just the state government, it's not the federal government, it's not local government, but, right. but state government cost Texans somewhere in the neighborhood of, I, I think it was about, was it $1,200 a month or something like that? It's something like that, right? Yeah, it, it was um, It was a nice mortgage payment or, you know, two car payments or something like that. And his question was, well, are we getting our money's worth from right. state government? And and um, my, my answer was no. Uh, you know, I, some people may think they're they're making out a good deal on this. But but I, I kind of like to talk in bigger numbers, too, uh, and, and see what those are like. So. The, the Texas budget that uh, is being discussed right now, the, the Senate version of it was about $250 billion. Right. And the the House budget was about $246 billion. Correct. Now, one thing that, that's kind of interesting um, <clears throat> in this is that the um, Texas legislature, the LBB, says that this current biennium, you know, so Texas is on a two-year budget cycle, as you know. So sure. for the current two-year system, 2020 and 2021, they're going to be spending $264 billion. So as a conservative, I'm looking at this and going, hey, what a, should I be saying? This is a great deal. They're spending $264 billion right now, and they're only going to spend $250 billion in, a, in the next deal. Is I mean, is that what we're looking at? Or are they really going to cut spending finally in Texas? Right. It is. It's certainly, I think what you're alluding to, right, is kind of this shell game that's being played where they are relying Wait, hold on a second. On. Hold on a second. Okay. You're saying that the legislature... Does shell games? <laughs> yeah, with almost everything they pass. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, we'll keep going, keep going. Um, but I, I assume what you're speaking to, right, is them relying on, without explicitly saying it, right, they are relying on money um, that is coming from the federal government, uh, specifically from uh, Biden's uh, COVID kind of relief plan that was recently passed. Um, and, and, and my numbers might be initially off, but I think very generally the, the point still stands. I think minimum of the 32 billion um, that that is slated to come from that right the question on for Texas is how much of that if not all of it they're going to take and if, if, if I remember correctly at least for you the house version they would be relying on at least a minimum of 18 billion dollars just to meet what is projected spending right uh, what they project it will cost to basically be government um, over the next biennium and you, you might have better numbers than that bill but I think that was my initial reading there yeah, so I think so. Two sixty four, this biennium, two forty six in in uh, their budget. So that means they're eighteen billion dollars short. Right, right. But 
I, I think, you know, we have this famous one-time spending. Right. That was the Harvey funds. Right. From last time. Now, how much of that was really one-time spending or not, I don't know. But they claim it's about $8 billion. So even just to get us back to normal, to, to, to level playing field, is they need $10 billion of that $32 billion to get us back to just level. Sure. But, of course, as you know, if Republicans just want to spend the same amount of money this year as they did last year, Democrats call those budget cuts. That's right. Right. Because because it doesn't keep up the same level of services because, you know, population growth plus inflation or whatever it is. Right. We, sure. We've got to spend more next time than we did now in order to keep up the same current services is what they right. call. Right. And so, you know, if you if you just, you know, from two hundred fifty thousand million dollars, billion dollars, excuse me, a five percent budget growth is about. Uh, $12 billion. And sure. so all of a sudden, if they're just going to grow the budget by that much, then all of a sudden you need $22 billion out of that uh, uh, 30 uh, out of that $32 billion you're getting the federal government. But the, the Texas right. spending over the last, um, you know, for a long time, the budget has gone up about 9% per biennium. Yeah. So basically you look at that and that's almost all of the $32 billion. And so all of a sudden this this $250 billion budget that looks so good and is being called conservative or, you know, only going up 2% of state funding uh, really is going to go up in the neighborhood of about 12 to 14% sure. over current, you know, and even if you want to use population growth plus inflation, that's only running about 5% now. Sure. So however you look at this, this is going to result in a massive increase in, in spending. I mean, I, I, it's I think, speculation at this point, but sure. The, the other takeaway there, the other part of the shell game that they generally, they meaning just legislators generally know the general public doesn't see right is they, they adopt at the back end of the legislative cycle, this thing they call the supplemental bill, right? Which like, which makes up right? The, the difference between, oh, we over or underestimated, right? Um, and so like, you know, on budget night, for instance, last week, they adopted what was called a supplemental budget to make up for the differences, right? The, uh, the difference between the last biennium, right? The, the um, 2020-2021 fiscal year where like they underestimated, right? The costs of certain uh, certain things in government. And and they know that legislators know that, that there will be some remnant, right? Like two years from now, they'll, they're going to adopt a, a supplemental, right? That'll make up for some difference there. And so it's, to your point, it's not necessarily an overt, like, oh, it's so conservative, uh, right? Sort of thing. They get to say that now, but generally speaking, it's nowhere near that. Yeah. So if, if you go back just from uh, some numbers I've got here sitting in front of me, maybe $283 billion, give or take a few billion. I mean, really, it's just a few billion. It doesn't really matter sure. that much, right? <laughs> but th that's what we're going to be doing this biennium. Back only back into, um, let, let's go back to 2013, uh, the last year before you know, a lot of the leadership in the state took took office. Sure. Uh, they, they appropriated in 2013, which was only eight years ago, right? Yeah. $200 billion, right? So in just that eight years, we've gone from $200 billion to $283 billion. Sure. And I'm not a math genius, but I think if I divided that up, that would be about a 40% increase sure. in, in, in appropriations just over that period of time. That, that really doesn't 
get Texans more conservative government. Right. Right. It just it it keeps growing. uh, Absolutely. I think obviously factoring in too, right, is that the additional kind of the things that we also don't control that kind of get shoved down our throats from the federal government. Right. And and kind of you know, playing part and parcel of that on both healthcare and education and, and regulations there and, and the cost to that and things that we can't touch or even deliberate. Um, and by we, I mean, our, our, our legislators, right. Uh, when it comes to that, it's just an ever growing kind of, you know, huge, um, huge deal that seemingly has no, there's no route of slowdown. Right. It, it just keeps on going and it's not being helped any by the fact that, and this is one of the amendments that got, put onto the uh, to the bill that, for instance, that and didn't get put onto the bill right. is that local governments can use that same taxpayer money to come up here and lobby for more of it. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, that you're alluding to an amendment by Yvonne Davis, a Democrat from, uh, I guess, the Dallas area where she took existing language that was in the budget that pre- prevented school districts right from uh, from being able to hire lobbyists, uh, taxpayer funded lobbyists. She took that out, which effectively means that now they can they can uh, they can use taxpayer money to come and lobby the legislature for things that are inevitably going to ask for more money. Right. More money for schools and school districts. So. Yeah. And, and that passed with significant Republican support. Uh, it did. It passed with a significant Republican support. It was kind of the first, at least certainly this legislative cycle, um, the first uh, uh, vote, if you will, or test vote for just taxpayer funded lobbying in general. Um, and you had it was uh, uh, she was successful it was 84 in favor and 54 opposed. And so it included 22 Republicans uh, that voted with her on that. Yeah. OK. Uh, you, you mentioned the other day in the podcast, too, that about Brian Slayton. He's a freshman Republican. And I think it was you who mentioned that he's one of the conservative leaders in the Texas House. Mm -hmm. What does it say about the status of conservatism in the Texas legislature when a freshman is one of the leader conservative leaders? Sure. I, I think there's a lot of things you can read into that. I think chief amongst them is that it's just they're there is, uh, especially as a freshman, I can I can imagine if I'm Representative Slayton, he doesn't have a lot of friends that are seemingly willing to do the same thing, right? We kind of suffer from this as legislators stay down there longer and longer, right? They kind of get grabbed by, for lack of a better term, I know it's overused, by the swamp, right? By people, uh, they get they get you know issued a shiny object or get told that hey, we can pass your bills if you do this and. Um, you know, they are less likely as they start getting wrapped into leadership somehow, right? Becoming chairman or start having their bills move. They're less likely to speak up against something that maybe leadership wants, right? And so yeah. that's why inevitably, and to Brian Slayton's credit, right? Like you, you see it's mainly freshmen that do this every time, right? It's because they don't have, not, not, it's not that they don't have anything to lose, but they haven't been offered that shiny object yet, right? Or they haven't, leadership hasn't found a way to necessarily bring them uh, from kind of the brink as they define it as this kind of arch right wing, you know, sort of thing. But I think most people, most Texans would probably agree with the actions of someone like Brian Slayton, right? Which is like, hey, for instance, like we should take money away from this slush fund, right? Where we get to, it's this crony, crony capitalist sort of thing. And we should put it towards property tax relief, things that actually impact you know, the everyday Texan, right? Um, but yeah, that doesn't translate necessarily that directly there in the legislature. Yeah, it's kind of hard. I mean, 
it, it's just I, I've always been a fan of term limits, and, and sure. not all of my even my conservative friends, not all of them have sure. them. But for one, one reason, I I've supported it because I think there's a moral hazard to coming to uh, a city like Austin or Washington D.C. as an elected official, uh, even. Even, you know, lobbying organizations, free market lobbying organizations, if you're up here too long, it can get to you. And, and so I think there's kind of a moral hazard. You get up here and, and it kind of changes who you are in some sense. And so it's not just for the people. I think term limits are good, but it's for the good of the people, who the elected officials who come up here sure. that they, they, they just it's hard for men and women to be subject to that for so long and not have it change they are in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I, I can tell you as a former legislative staffer, right, one of the struggles for different legislators, not just the ones I'd work on, but in meetings, right, is, um, you know, you kind of struggles with two. And this is this bears there's some responsibility on the voting populace, right, is to like, what what do we define? What do we want? our government to do or not do, frankly, what do we define as being an effective legislator, right? And there's some legislators that struggle with, maybe they go in thinking they're going to cut government, they're going to do this. And if they're not rewarded by their uh, by their constituents, right? If they only hear from constituents who want some pet project of theirs that impacts their locality or something, that's how they're going to legislate, right? And and so I always kind of shy away from, I think it's easy to say that all, all these legislators are bad. There are a whole host of them that are, right? But I think right. we, just as everyday Texans, as voters, right, we bear a lot of that responsibility by not fulfilling our responsibility in the Republic, right? Which is kind of holding their feet to the fire, right? Um, you know, supporting them when they do good things and not supporting them when they don't and generally paying attention, right? Yeah, well, it, very good point. No matter how these people vote up here, they only get to vote that way because we sent them up here. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So my understanding is that this not very conservative budget passed unanimously out of the Texas Senate and the Texas House. Is that correct? correct? That is correct. So, I mean, look, just we'll and we'll wrap up with this. But so this is a budget that, for instance, funds taking money from average Texans and giving it to big, rich, multi-billion dollar corporations. Is, is that that's part of the budget? I, I think so. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There's still slush like funds. The, yeah. the slush funds. Mm-hmm. And then then not, not to mention that it supports local governments who do the same thing. With, Correct tax abatements, those kind of things. This is a budget that I think supports like the University of Texas, who has racist policies, right? Who, who don't, won't let certain people in because of the color of their skin. Is that correct? Right. I, that's correct. Right. Yeah. It, it, it funds Medicaid, you know, which has been proven through a lot of different studies to provide lower quality health care for right. a lot of poor people. Right. right? It, it, it's that kind of thing. It, it funds... Uh, through a variety of different ways, it, it supports this renewable energy policies in Texas, it, you know, and the PUC who has who's put all this stuff in there, which led to the Texas blackout and, and all these kind of things, right? So that's right. So so you're telling me that essentially the Texas Senate, Texas House, unanimously passed a budget that is 
you know, promotes theft and racism and crony corporatism and all that kind of thing. Is that basically where we are in Texas today? I think I think it's safe to say that that is correct. Okay. Well, I, I don't mean to be putting words in your mouth. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll I'll take credit for the for these words. You you don't have to do them, but I, I just want to make sure that I'm kind of understanding where we are on the. There are uh, aspects Texas. of the budget that yes support everything that you said. Yes. Right, and, and I, I know it's hard. We, we need a budget. We've got to we've got to pass a budget to do some things here in Texas. Sure. But every single session, we just keep having these unanimous budget votes or occasionally we get some where maybe 10 or 12 or sure. Republicans, something like that, vote against it. But it, it doesn't seem that we can ever even get a significant group of Republicans. Sure in the legislature to say, hey, wait a minute, we're spending too much money. Where, where does that leave us going forward as conservatives? And we'll finish with that. Sure. I think I it is a frustration that I've heard from conservatives for years, right? And I think really what it speaks to is just how much pressure is put on legislators, both during the time in which they're debating it, both when the budget hits the floor and also when the conference committee report um, comes out, but also beforehand, right? Like the budget, since it is the one constitutionally bound sort of thing, leadership, no one in leadership wants to be, you know, responsible for it failing, right? And so it, a lot of times behind the scenes, the, the immense pressure they'll put on members uh, to bring them kind of into line, right? Like to toe the line on why they should support it. And like, okay, I understand you might have these issues with it, but overall, you know, it's your your responsibility to fund government uh, for your constituents, right? It's just an immense amount of pressure. They'll leverage the calendar system. They'll leverage, um, you know, oh, you've got still six bills waiting here. Well, you vote against this budget. I guarantee you it's not going to go anywhere. And at the end of the day, there's a cost benefit analysis that goes into every one of these um, you know, the deliberations from individual members. And, and to your point, yes, the last few cycles, especially, it is almost inevitable that it reaches the floor. Most of the debate is theater and they, everyone generally knows that they're going to vote for it at the end of the day. And as Texans, we should certainly be asking the question as to whether or not that's actually what we want our legislators to do um, with our tax dollars, right? Well, that's uh, uh, that's a look at the Texas budget. Maybe not the most... Um, optimistic or positive look at the Texas budget and Texas government today. But I, I think it's a pretty realistic view. And but I, I think there's still hope for our future. And that, and that's why we're both at our jobs continuing to promote liberty. So, Jeremy, really appreciate the work you're doing for liberty and appreciate you being on the Liberty Cafe today. Sure. Thanks for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. And also want to thank, again, Texas Scorecard for being the sponsor of the Liberty Cafe. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate this show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.